On this spectacular episode of StarPod Trek, we consider the Star Trek contents of Starlog Magazine in issues 51 and 52 from 1981. Bob Turner and Kelly Casto review the motion picture soundtrack by Jerry Goldsmith. Mark Adam and Brenda Miller discuss what Gene Roddenberry was up to. Bert Bruce talks about astronaut and artist Alan Bean. Lou, Max, and Rich consider the career of William Shatner. Plus, the motion picture on video cassette. And more on this episode of Star Trek. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hoorah. Telly ho. Hey, my little Georgia Peach. Hey, Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and watched Star Trek reruns when it was on syndication. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what it was like to be a Trekkie years ago. But we leave the non-Trek-related content to our other podcast, Starpod Log. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine, or read it for free online at archive.org. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows, we might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. So in January, 6th through 8th, ShadowCon, Memphis, Tennessee. Another con that we just started going to, and, it, and it's a lot of fun. They've got, they've got their SCA, they've got um, live-action swordplay, and they've got a lot of gaming and panels on all different genres. Look for us there. Starlog Magazine, issue number 51, cover date, October 1981. Log entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. NASA News, the solar environment. Pioneer 10, now a little over halfway between the orbits of Uranus and Neptune, has found that the sun's atmosphere and magnetic envelope extend an enormous distance far beyond the point predicted by many scientists, according to J.A. Van Allen, Pioneer Investigator. So these are reports from Pioneer 10 showing different atmospheres of the planets, and you get a, a, a sense of awe because you realize that our sun is typical of the majority of stars in the universe, and the new findings about the character and scale of the sun's atmosphere and magnetic envelope greatly increase our understanding of other stars and environments of any planets that they might have. Yeah, that's really cool. So the probe, and they've got pictures here of what it, uh, the pictures it sent back. And all of it is, is really neat looking. Super brilliant colors. That's one of the things that we can't see here on Earth. Yeah, it's like you, you wouldn't know that it, that it looks like that. Planetary Society. 40,000 members and growing. How often do you get invited to join a club that has Carl Sagan as president and members like Johnny Carson, ex-astronaut Senator Harrison Schmidt, James Mishner, James Van Allen, Ray Bradbury, 
Isaac Asimov, and Ed Adelaide Stevenson III. The Planetary Society, just under one year old, already boasts 40,000 members and it's hoping to build up the largest non-profit organization promoting American and international involvement in space. The funny thing is, I still see ads online about joining the Planetary Society. So it's an organization that's running strong. Yeah, and and it had great support to begin with. So it, it's great that it's still going, even though there's like, you know, they had been less of the space program for a while. The group advocates not only unmanned exploratory missions within the solar system, but wants to put men back into space and beyond the moon to the planets. And at the time, it was a $15 annual membership. Which is pretty good. We're going to put a link in our show notes if you'd like to join this society. Currently, membership is $50 a year and includes a variety of Explorer premiums, such as a t-shirt and if you do family memberships, or different levels of memberships, your premiums increase. So we can see the society has been growing for over 40 years now. Welcome, this is Bob Turner. And I'm Kelly Castor. And we're from the podcast 70s Trek and the Unofficial Trek podcast. And today we're looking at Starlog issue number 51 from October unbelievable 1981 wow yeah before we dive in and we're going to be talking about jerry goldsmith in an article written by sam maroney we thought it would be fun to poke around in this issue just a little bit because what's really cool is on the cover of this issue is a picture of luke skywalker from um empire strikes back and then we also see a picture of um from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. And then there are a couple of uh, little, you know, little hints about what's in this episode or this episode, this issue, <laughs> things like, hey, Ray Harryhausen on Clash of the Titans, astronaut Alan Bean about some space art, things like that. And then it says the new Batman film. Now, this is like eight years early. <laughs> Just a, a few years early. Right, because Batman didn't come out until 1989. Yes. Oh, wow. So there was a Batman movie in talks, apparently, right, in 1981 that that clearly didn't go anywhere. Yeah. That's a shame. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what else is in this article or this this issue? So there is a couple of Star Trek-related things um, outside of, of course, the the jury uh, Goldsmith article that we'll be talking about. There's an article, um, with William Shatner, the once and future Kirk and the creator of Trek talks about his other projects, that being Gene Roddenberry. So lots of Star Trek related stuff. And then when I flip through here, uh, they are, there's a little article about Ross Martin and Ross Martin is from one of my favorite TV shows back way back in the day, wild, wild west. And he was of course, Artemis Gordon. I had to yes. Yeah. I love that show. I love that show. And so he died at age 61 of a heart, apparent heart attack 
oh, while he was playing tennis in a hundred degree heat. And they have a nice little article here, you know, four or five paragraphs talking about Ross. So I had no idea that he died so young. What a shame. I know. I, I didn't either. I knew he died young, but not that young. So I love going back through the Starlog magazine. Yeah, I do this too. This is so much fun. It's reliving our past. It is. It is. But we ought to talk about the, um, the reason we're here. And that is an article again by Sam Maroney entitled, and I love this title, Jerry Goldsmith. Science fiction's hottest film scorer prefers to let his music do the talking. I, I wonder if John Williams took exception to that title. I, I really I think, think, yeah, I don't, I think it was more <laughs> leaning as you read through the article, it was more leaning towards Jerry Goldsmith was a hard nut to crack. He didn't like talking about himself. Isn't that the truth? Yes. And I, I really thought it was interesting the way Maroney says, you know, he's shy, he's humble. At one point, saying something to the effect, do you really want to talk about this stuff? <laughs> yeah. You know, and Maroney's there else? like, yeah, this is my assignment for the month. I got to interview you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's It was interesting. We've talked about Jerry Goldsmith in the past on other podcast shows, but, you know, he came to Star Trek and accomplished a uh, music composer for TV and film, having worked on Patton and the Sand Pebbles and Planet of the Apes and Logan's Run. Um, and in fact, he had ties to Star Trek before working on the motion picture because Roddenberry had offered, offered him the job in 1965 of composing the original theme, but yeah. he wasn't able to work on it. And so it went to Alexander Courage instead. Um, and he's also an award-winning composer. He won an Academy Award for The Omen. Yeah. That so, was creepy music. It really was. Yeah. Some of my most, uh, some of my most favorite music. I'm going to reward that. I think some of my favorite music <laughs> that he's done is the, uh, is the score and the theme from Planet of the Apes. Yes. We've talked about this before. It is so jarring at times. And, and he brings in, um, percussion instruments where you don't expect them and, um, um, melodies that don't quite fit or make sense. And you're just, if you dwell on the music, it's a little unpleasant. Yeah. Which is exactly what he was going for. Exactly. I mean, I was trying to, I was thinking about it. you know, re-listening to um, some of the this music, if you'll call it music, from <laughs> the Apes, <laughs> and you know, I I'm thinking this is primitive but alien. Yes. So yeah, very much, very much. Um, I I like where Maroney went. He kind of got into a a little bit about how Goldsmith worked when he was working on films. Um, he writes that uh, Jerry had a straightforward approach. He would try not to have any preconceived notions. He would read the script. He would watch a rough cut of the movie, try to understand the feelings and emotions that the movie was trying to portray or put out there, and then begin the process from from those points forward, which yeah. um, it really is kind of straightforward. There's no magic to it, right? It's 
right. do some homework and experience it and then get busy. Well, and he also said that Jerry is not Hollywood by any stretch of the imagination. He's not Hollywood. He's not your typical, um, you know, Hollywood worker, if you will. Um, so, and that, that he rarely visited the set or inter- interacted with anybody on the production crew. So he just, he was composing. He was busy working. That's, That's right. It. Yep. Um, I liked uh, at one point Goldsmith in the article says that he believed that the music he created should only be inserted into a film when it's needed to emphasize a point. Yes. And you, that's brilliant. And you don't always think about that as you're watching TV or film, right? Yeah. But it should, it should, it should almost be like an exclamation mark, you know, to say, Hey, this is important. You should be paying attention to this. Right. And he said the correct use of movie music is as important as the actual composition of the music. Thought that but, made a lot of sense. But early in his career, they talk um, a little bit about his work on the Twilight Zone. Oh yeah. And early in his career, um, he was working on the Twilight Zone, and specifically, there was um, an episode called "The Invaders," mm-hmm. and Agnes Moorhead was the actress on that, and there was l- literally no words. There was no dialogue and all the, basically the dialogue, all the feeling was coming from the music that Jerry was providing. Think about the responsibility on that one. Yes. Yeah. That was pretty tough. I'm sure. Yes. But what, what a way to learn and to grow. You know, it's funny after decades, right. Of listening to the motion picture and realizing that it was Jerry Goldsmith and then Realizing that the guy had been around and you go back and you start listening to his other music. I, I, I've always been impressed by his ability to change styles to, to fit the kind of movie he's working on, you know, whether it be, um, a movie that's set during world war one or a futuristic story, like the motion picture, he's yeah. always able to shift gears yeah, and, and make the music match what you're seeing on screen. Yeah. Well, look, just take the one example we ha- we talked about already, which is Planet of the Apes. Compare that to Star Trek, but then compare those two to Patton. Oh, my gosh, right. I mean, you, you're in totally different realms in all three of those. Right. Patton is a rousing military march. Yes. And, you know. Especially if you're thinking about the cloud sequence in the motion picture. Yes. That, you know, the, uh, the blaster beam musical instrument that he used. Right. Right. That was a sound that nobody had heard before, but it works. It, it worked and it felt very much what well, that sound was V'ger. Yes. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. Very much. Uh, even the way he um, created a theme for the Klingons, right? That was, yes. um, it was very different from any of the other music that we heard when Starfleet is on the screen. It's almost tribal. It, it, you know, it brings, brings up almost a primitive feeling when you're hearing it. 
but it's so good that it's pulled into other pro- Star Trek productions over the years. Whenever yeah. you see the Klingons and, and you know it now, you know, oh, that's that Klingon theme. These are Klingons, you know? Yeah. Well, and we know the Star Trek theme. Next exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Talk about a piece of music, right? That the score or the theme that he wrote for the motion picture is used again in Star Trek five in Star Trek, the next generation. It's so good. It's used several times over. It is. Tell me if I'm wrong. The modern Star Trek theme. Yeah, no, it is. Absolutely. Well, cool and stuff. since we're talking about next gen or the motion picture, I should say the approach of the shuttlecraft going to the enterprise and the <sighs> music in just that scene. Absolutely. I wish I could have a loop of that just going all the time. It's especially as as the shuttle passes the enterprise and begins its turn so yeah. that Kirk for the first time sees the entire enterprise unobstructed from the front. And as that music builds and it swells and all of a sudden, boom, then you've got the theme. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's gorgeous. It is. It's so well executed that I think we've said this before, but it's probably the best executed part of that movie is the enterprise reveal. It is absolutely the best. I love it. Every time I love it. And then of course, enterprise leaving, uh, leaving the dry dock. It's a gorgeous sequence made all the more powerful by Goldsmith's music. Yeah. It, it would, it would be fantastic without the music, but he takes it, you know, way out of the, the galaxy. He does. He does. Wasn't it interesting how um, Goldsmith and John Williams go back and forth, right? Um, in through the seventies, they're they're both big names in the music world of film. They're they're both having big scores, and and um, in fact, if you remember the story about Superman. Goldsmith was first hired, right? Yeah. And then he couldn't do it. And then they hired John Williams, but because the movie was running long, John Williams couldn't do it. So they rehired Goldsmith. Right. But the movie continued to run long and Goldsmith (laughs) couldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) But it's those two names that come out of the, you know, the, the mid to late seventies, they're powerhouses. Yeah, they are. Well, even through the eighties and nineties. Yeah. And Absolutely. Yeah. They so. sort of create the, the template for what movie music was during that period. Absolutely. Good stuff. Um, yeah. You know, we, we touched on it. Maroney, the writer of the article states that, you know, Goldsmith is humble, even shy. Um, the writer ends the article by saying, quote, it's tempting for a writer to fall back on a corny cliche and respond that Jerry Goldsmith's music says it all. But in the composer's case, that statement could not be more fitting, unquote. Yeah. That's actually a good way to end the article. It it was a very good way to end the article. He's saying that Jerry's music speaks for itself. And it's not arrogant. It's not, you know, being, you know, I'm the best. It's no, just let his body of work speak for him. Yep. Because he's not going to. Right. I was just (laughs) going to say, and I think he was happy with that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. 
Hey, this has been a fun look at um, issue number 51 from Starlog, October 1981. Where were you at in October 1981, Cal? I had a cast on my right leg. Oh, wow. no. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yes. I so was, there you go. In high school. I was starting college at Youngstown State University. It was you my were. fall quarter. I was scared to death. Yes. And then. Oh, well. You're, you're just waiting for me to get there three years later. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> the great bird of the galaxy, Gene Roddenberry, once said, We must learn not just to accept differences between ourselves and our ideas, but to enthusiastically welcome and enjoy them. Starpod Trek, celebrating Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. All right, kids and kittens, this is Burt Bruce, also known as Bruce Burtner. We're going to talk about Alan Bean. He was uh, born Alan Laverne Bean, March 15, 1932, passed away May 26, 2018. He was a naval officer, an aviator, aeronautical engineer, a test pilot, a NASA astronaut, and a painter. He was the fourth person to walk on the moon. Take that, moon. I walk on your face. I walk on the face of the moon. If he did find any weird alien-type structures, he didn't report it in the article. He was uh, a painter, and because he'd uh, stepped on the face of the moon, he had real-life personal experience with walking on the moon. Bean was the Apollo lunar module pilot on Apollo 12, the second lunar landing in November 1969. Bean and Pete Conrad landed on the moon's ocean of storms after a flight of 250,000 miles and a launch that included a harrowing lightning strike. Dick Gordon remained in lunar orbit, photographing landing sites for future missions. Bean had planned on using a self-timer for his Hasselblad camera, try to say that three times fast, to take a photograph of both Pete Conrad and himself while on the lunar surface near the Surveyor 3 spacecraft. He was hoping to record a good photo and also to confuse the mission scientist as to how the photos could have been taken. However, neither he nor Conrad could locate the timer in the tool carrier tote bag while at the Surveyor 3 site, thus lost the opportunity. After finding the self-timer unit at the end of the EVA it was too late to use, he threw it as far as he could. His paintings of what this photo would have looked like, titled The Fabulous Photo We Never Took and One of the Fruitless Searches, for the timer, our little secret, are included in this collection of Apollo paintings. Again, you get nut job. Well, I shouldn't say nut jobs. I like the guy very much. But uh, Buzz Aldrin would report about things such as uh, on the uh, moon of uh, Mars called Phobos, there is a monolith. And uh, many people feel that the face on Mars is, in fact, a face on Mars. Alan B. never really talked much about that. He was more, you know concerned with this after he left NASA in 1981 he devoted his time to painting and we're going to talk about that next Bean said his decision was based on in his 18 years as an astronaut he was fortunate enough to visit worlds and see sites no artist eyes past or present has ever viewed firsthand and he hoped to express these experiences through his art Bean wanted to add color to the moon I had to figure out a way to add color to the moon without ruining it he remarked in paintings the lunar landscape is not is not a monotonous gray, but shades of various colors. If I were a scientist painting the moon, I would paint it gray. I'm an artist, 
so I can add colors to the moon. Bean's paintings included Lunar Grand Prix and rock and roll on the ocean of storms, and he used real moon dust in his paintings. When he began painting, he realized that keepsake patches from his spacesuit were dirty with moon dust. He added tiny pieces of the patches to his paintings, which made them unique. He also used a hammer used to pound the flagpole into the lunar surface and a bronzed moon boot to texture his paintings. In July 2009, for the 40th anniversary of Apollo 11 moon landing, Bean exhibited his lunar paintings at the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum in Washington. Bean took a piece of the Clan McBean tartan to the moon in recognition of his Scottish ancestry. Bean stated, As I remembered, I took Clan McBean tartan to the moon and returned it to Earth. I did, in fact, give a piece of the tartan to the Clan McBean and also to the St. Bean Chapel in Scotland, and I've still got some of it in my possession. I did not, however, leave any of it on the moon. Just a little side note, I'm part Scottish on my uh, paternal grandmother's side. She was Scottish, so Scotland and Ireland, there's a difference. So uh, back to Bean. He died on May 26, 2018 in Houston, Texas at the age of 86. His death followed the sudden onset of illness two weeks before while he was in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Again, I'm near from near Fort Wayne, Indiana. I'm, I was born in Gary, Indiana. At the time of his death, Bean was married to his second wife, Leslie. He had a son, Clay, and a daughter, Amy Sue, both from his first marriage. Bean was interred in the Arlington National Cemetery on November 8th, 2018, with a service which included a flyover, military band, carriage procession, and the 21-gun salute. So for his legacy, this is interesting, he was awarded with several awards and decorations decorations during his career. He received the Rear Admiral William S. Parsons Award for Scientific and Technical Progress, Godfrey L. Cabot Award in 1970, the National Academy of Television and Arts and Sciences Trustees Award, the VM Kamarov Diploma for 1973, the AAS Flight Achievement Award for 1974, being received also Navy Aeronaut Swings, the Navy Distinguished Service Medal twice, NASA's Distinguished Service Medal twice, and the National Defense Service Medal and a Bronze Star. Bean was inducted into the International Space Hall of Fame in 1983, also the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1997, also the International Air and Space Hall of Fame in 2010, and the National Aviation Hall of Fame for 2010. He was a fellow of the American Astronautical Society and a member of the Society of Experimental Test Pilots. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, Alan Bean, very interesting person and had a distinguished career. This is Bill Blair, the Guinness World Record holder for the most special effect makeup characters portrayed in a career. Watch Star Trek? Yeah, you've seen me. Check it out. And thanks for listening to Star Pod Trek. I'm Commodore Mark Adam Miller, and I'm the commanding officer of Star Trek Fan Club U.S. Festus in Birmingham, Alabama, which is part of Starfleet International Incorporated. Greetings. I am Fleet Captain Brenda Miller. I am the second officer of the USS Hephaestus and editor of the Hephaestus newsletter, The Anvil. This article is entitled Gene Roddenberry, The Years Between, The Years Ahead by Jeff Salazay. To give you a picture, let's 
set where this is at. Uh, this is article is almost two years after Star Trek, the motion picture and eight months before Star Trek Wrath of Khan has come out, which was June of 1982. And this, of course, is six years before Star Trek, the next generation. Most of the article covers the time period between Star Trek, the original series, and when the motion picture came out, starting with what Gene was doing between the original series and the motion picture. Uh, Gene was still trying to work, getting programs on TV. He still wanted to write for TV and do this type of thing. Uh, he also was going around uh, lecturing at different universities on Star Trek because people would call them, uh, call him to do these things. If you were in the seventies after these, after he made several pilots, they would show up on Saturday afternoon, maybe Sunday afternoon as a fill in on some TVs. You may have heard of, of some of these. Uh, one of them was Genesis two, uh, which they tried several times. The, uh, there's very similarities between Genesis 2, Planet Earth, and something called Strange New World. It dealt with some type of catastrophe that's happened on the Earth, and a group of people called Pax were trying to save stuff that would help people, like library material, uh, government articles, maybe even the Constitution of the United States, trying to save this so that it would not be destroyed, that once the, the people got away from what would be a destructive, just surviving, where they actually were starting to build, rebuild governments and uh, society, uh, that they would be able to help. And they were trying to help these people. In Genesis 2, a man was cryogenically frozen, and before the fall, and afterwards, Pax thought him out to help them because he would know what society was before the fall. Uh, I had wondered why he was frozen, and it wasn't really explained, but they ran across him somehow and, and said, okay, let's thaw this guy out. And think of the shock that he might have had. Don't yeah. know how many years after he was frozen that he was awoken and but to adjust to that and not have anything of what your normal what you think of as a normal society of course this was all these all three of these were pilot episodes uh they were never picked up uh genesis 2 was penciled in but got thrown away because uh another one came along called planet of the apes which was a takeoff on the movies, uh, Planet of the Apes and Return of the Planet of the Apes. And they were hoping to cash in, which the only difference between Planet of the Apes and Genesis 2 is that there was apes who were ruling the world where, uh, the rule, the, uh, world, uh, in Genesis 2 is ruled by people who are just trying to survive, uh, tri very tribal and this type of thing. And Planet of the Apes, and of course, it was two astronauts who came back and were trying to figure out how did they get so far in the future or, how, or what happened while they were out in space. Uh, this is very similar to the Planet Earth. Uh, Genesis 2 was just yeah, Ethan Hunt, which you may recognize from the Andromeda series. 
Gene Roddenberry liked that name, and it pops up in a lot of his a lot of his stories. Um, but in Planet Earth, Ethan Hunt came up, and also again, but this time it was not just one person in Planet Earth, but it was the space crew. So Planet Apes had that going for it, even though Planet uh, Planet Earth was a little further down the line after Genesis Two. I think it was a year or two before they put that together. But because the planet had the coincide with the movies, they thought that would work better and bring in a more bigger audience. So they uh, shelved Genesis 2. And Gene tried to rework it and made Planet Earth. Uh, Warner Brothers, who he had the contract with at the time for these two, liked the must have liked the content because they, without Gene's help, made Strange New Worlds, which... It's kind of strange because now we have Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Not the uh, same. Which is not the same. So it's kind of interesting. The aspect of these three, in my opinion, was very similar to Star Trek uh, because Jane always was trying to be money conscious uh, because if you went over too much in a budget, the studios wouldn't because TV was not was a cheap form. They had only had so much money to play with. And so he tried his best to come up with concepts that would use the materials like costumes and props that already studio houses had. Um, that's why you get uh, the uh, Roman program on Star Trek. Uh, you get the Nazi program on Star Trek because they had costumes that they could pull from to use those type of things. And that was the idea behind Genesis 2 and Planet Earth, that they would be seeing societies uh, like they might see a Roman society at some point in time have developed or a cowboy society, uh, de- develop and stuff like that. So that's, it's a common theme, it seems, with Gene to do that type of thing. But they, all of them seem to smack a little bit of Buck Rogers in the 21st century. Something happened and a person is misplaced in centuries and they are now two to three centuries ahead of where they were actually born uh, and having to deal with what's going on in the society back at that time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and you know, you, you, you could almost say the, the Buck Rogers that was with Gil Gerard could ha, had very similar to this. Uh, maybe Gene was thinking of the original Buck Rogers, even though uh, the Gil Gerard had him in space, the original story of Buck Rogers, which was a comic strip in the newspaper had him somehow uh, cryologically cryologically frozen in a cave with some type of gas and then the cave being uncovered by William Wilma Deering and finding uh, Buck in the cave Um, so he maybe that's what uh, his Dylan Hunt um, character may had that in Genesis 2 that he had from that uh, another one that he tried was Questor Tapes. Uh, this is an android who supposedly, uh, there's an, been an android around for many generations guiding the human race. And finally, this one, the, this one android is trying to make the duplicate, uh, or the new model that will take over for him, but he is malfunctioning and is, in a sense, quote, dying. And so he turns it over to a government agency. But fearing the Evan agent might corrupt him, he did program it to have a certain mission. And once the he died and the government agency 
completed him. He escaped from that government agent because of this program. And he's going on a quest to find his original creator and to figure out what he, uh, what, what is missing from the program that he did. Uh, a lot of stuff in this that was supposed to be, if this had become a series only, it was only made into a movie came into some of the stuff that they did for data in the next generation. Um, the names might change, but Dr. Noonien soon, uh, was trying to create robots to help guide mankind and to, uh, help mankind be a better people, uh, and sort of understand, uh, humans. Um, and that's why he created data. So some of that stuff then was reused in, uh, this type of thing. One of these that was talked in this article was Spectra, which to me sounds sort of like, uh, Kolchek, the Night Stalker. Maybe I've not heard of it because it sounded like it was created in Britain. And some of that stuff sometimes didn't translate until much later. Or not translate, did not get back over transition here. Transition to Transi- this side of the pond. Tran- transition to this side of the pond until much later. That was more of a horror. So if it was more of a horror and the paranormal, I pr- probably would not have watched it. Uh, cause I still was a teenager at this time, um, in the seventies of that. Uh, he also would have been working on, uh, phase two of Star Trek. Uh, they were looking to make another television series. Paramount was going to make a go of it. Uh, of course it didn't go because Star Wars came out and Paramount had wanted a movie that was like Star Wars to bring in that money to, uh, cash in on what, uh, Star Wars was doing, and they thought the best thing they had was Star Trek, and they did that. Uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture did well, uh, but not as well as Paramount wanted. This article says Gene sort of wanted to do other things, so he really didn't want to continue on. My understanding more was that um, they wanted something a little different, and they thought Gene was going to block them, so they booted him up to executive producer and brought in Harvard Harvey Bennett to do, uh, the Wrath of Khan and which left Gene to do his own thing. Gene still had some belief in Star Trek, but I think he, um, he had been burned several times, especially with you know, being burned with Genesis 2 and the Quester tape. Uh, he wasn't, he wasn't believing TV programs. And it's interesting in reading this article, to me, it's like, it sounds like Gene was seeing what we're getting nowadays because he was talking about making Star Trek, uh, be four or five different short movies, like 90 or two hour movies, which is sort of what we're getting with the, uh, Star Trek Discovery and Picard, even though they're sort of still keeping at the hour. Uh, some of them are going over, um, uh, yeah, they're normally 50 minutes, but a couple of them, do go over the hour mark. Uh, and actually discovery is sort of a story told out in 10 episodes. And, but Gene was looking at these movies doing like four or five a year and they'd be an hour and a half to two hours and they wouldn't fit into the television programming that we have now had back then of, you know, uh, the fall season and then the, the spring season would uh, bring in new shows that, uh, to replace the ones that failed from the fall and keep going. And it looks at like interesting the way he talks. It sounds like he, 
is seeing what we're getting now with Paramount Plus, Disney Plus, and the like with these programs because they're able to do these programs over a longer period of time. Television programs are normally done in six days with something like 14-hour days and going through that, and so they're done really quickly, where the programs that are done on Discovery, Picard, these, you know, each program may take three weeks to do. They're almost a small production of a movie. Uh, so they're able to bring the price out across where the television shows you watch today or back then were made as quickly and cheaply as possible to get them back on the air in a quick time. It is interesting how Gene still sort of had this, not really a utopia, but a, a crisis that tries to get, have a utopia sort of developed from that crisis, but showing that you still have problems. Mm-hmm. Nothing's ideal. Even though he was sort of trying to get away from sci-fi, he still sort of had that in there all along. Yeah. It's like, I can't help it. I'm sci-fi. I, Gene was really, I think Gene was really looking, he really had some vision in seeing that we're not where we need to be right now, but we're going to get there. Um, and there's going to be some rough spots getting there and we just have, have to try to continue looking forward to do better than what we did. And, um, and I think Star Trek has become the standard for that in a lot of things. Um, because of what they tried to do in the original series, Gene again tried to do in Genesis 2 and the Quester tapes. Um, like I said, I don't know about Spectrum because I don't know where, uh, I know that he was trying to get rid of some of the mysticism and trying to make that paranormal may have been something that, uh, alien life had, uh, had a different idea of physics than we did instead of having this mystic, you know, magical, uh, type of thing to it. Um, of course, uh, Gene was a humanist and from some of the articles that some say he was an atheist. Other articles said, yeah, I believe in God, but not what, uh, not what we understand of God. So there is that. He also, um, I think he, he really was looking to make Star Trek. So it didn't have to be on TV, but had some, would be in some other format, like a movie or stuff. Um, I don't think he really, uh, looked on the, was looking towards the web. I don't know. Of course, the web hadn't been completely realized by that time. The web wasn't around until the nineties. So he still was looking, uh, he, he felt the television would change in some way. Um, the article does talk about him writing some novels. Uh, I did some looking up to see what novels he did, but could not find anything except for a, uh, novel he wrote with somebody else. Well, it wasn't a novel. It was a guidebook on, uh, a discussion on what we would need to do to change in our governments if we actually did start going out into space and how we would be looking at uh doing that stuff. Um I, I I'd be interested in getting that book because I was one I'm wondering uh we have the International Space Station and I know there's certain guidelines that we have to have because the International Space Station is for is done by many different nations and they have all access to this space station. 
and there are certain thing, guidelines so that they can get along to do the, what goes on in the International Space Station. And it would be interesting to see uh, Gene's thought of, thoughts on those. Okay, but with, like, he did the motion picture, but he, he did that before he wrote the Genesis. Is that right? Am no, I no Genesis, Genesis, Planet Earth, Questrotation, all before motion picture. All before the yeah, motion that's, picture. That, that was all in the motion. And then the motion picture came along, and that sort of brought him back to Paramount um, because Genesis 2 and the Quester tapes, that's all Warner Brother Productions, not Paramount. And this pro- sort of brought him back to Paramount and he started, started doing some work with them, uh, again. But, um, Paramount, of course, was just looking at it as movies until they finally decided to try to reboot Star Trek with Next Generation. We're doing the movie, uh, special, especially with The Wrath of Khan and Search for Spock. The Search for Spock, I think is what finally made Paramount think, okay, we need, we need to bring Star Trek back to, to TV and started working it. And I think Voyage Home came first and then we got the next generation. And that's where Paramount brought back the next generation because they felt that Star Trek needed to come back. And they worked with Gene to do that, even though, uh, by this time he was starting to get ill and, uh, he was only in for first two seasons. Uh, and then by that time he was not doing as well. So he took a back seat and seasons three through seven, uh, was taken by Rick Berman. As it had been, um, I'm Mark Adam Miller. Uh, I run a fan club in Birmingham, Alabama called the USF Festus. Uh, you can look us up on Facebook at USF Festus. Uh, if you can't remember a Festus, just think, uh, Greek god of the forge. The Roman god of the forge is Vulcan. We couldn't use that, so we used the Greek god of the forge. So you look up, look us up on that. We are part of a larger group called Starfleet International Incorporated. Uh, Starfleet International can be found at www.sfi.org, uh, online. Uh, check us out on there. Starfleet International is run by the fans. We do not have any connection with uh, Paramount, uh, they, we try to stay out of Paramount, Paramount's hair and Paramount's try to stay out of our hair. <laughs> so, uh, as long as we don't really step on their toes, they don't, not concerned, but we are a bunch, it's run by Star Trek fans who love Star Trek. There's some developments in the world of home computers in 1981. Let's talk about them. Texas Instrument released the TI-99-4A, an update to 1979's TI-99-4. Actually, the, the TI-99-4A was the first home computer that our family ever had. Your family had a computer? But that was it, TI-99-4A, yeah. But, I mean, me and my brother were the only ones that used it. My parents didn't. Oh, okay, so it was really yours and your brother's. Yeah, they didn't. You know, they kind of pushed it as, like, you could do home finance. You could do... All kinds of, and I asked my dad, I was like, Dad, do you want to use it for this? I was like, I was hoping he would get involved too. He's like, nah, I got a pen and paper. He didn't care. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did your parents ever use computers when they became more popular? No, I mean, my parents never had one at home. I mean, my mother did use a computer at work in the 80s, and she didn't have it on her desk. There was one computer that everyone in her department used. Mm-hmm. The IBM PC was released 
At the time, in the United States, $1,565. It had 16K RAM with no disk drives and four-color CGA graphics. Can you imagine that? Which was expensive back then. Expensive now. I don't want to spend $1,500 <laughs> on a computer now. That's ludicrous. The Commodore Business Machines released the Commodore VIC-20 home computer. I'll tell you what. The Commodore VIC-20 was popular, but when that Commodore 64 came out, it crushed it. But it's amazing. This is the early stages of home computers. Activity and convention scene. So we did the annual Light the Night Walk. Uh, That is sponsored by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And they have these walks every year all around the country. And we, of course, went in our Star Trek uniforms. We did. uh, So we did it as Starfleet officers. And uh, we did it with our Tennessee Star Trek fans meetup group. It was awesome. And we raised how much money for the Leukemia Society? Uh, $560. That that was just our team. And, of course... um, like, like there were there were lots of people there, so we raised um, a good amount of money for the, the whole night. And we were walking for Team Billy. My brother Billy uh, was my older brother who died of leukemia several years ago, and he was only 26 when he died. And he was a big Star Trek fan, so I, I say we, we do this for Star Trek and in honor in memory of my brother. So I've um, I've been doing this walk for several years. So it was at Nashville Sound Stadium, and they always have um, different booths set up. They had vendors, so you could, we, you know, we walked around before before uh, the actual event walk, and there were some neat things to see. You can pick up some little gadgets, some little light up bracelets and necklaces, and those kind of things. And because we were in Star Trek gear, we say we were borgified. Yeah, we were wearing all kinds of little um, light up jewelry. And uh, and then the walk was actually it was around the uh, yeah the baseball diamond or on the uh, warning track and so we did two or three laps around and then watch fireworks afterwards. It, w- it was a great fireworks scene too, you know, not as long as the one for the Fourth of July, but it was still pretty good. It was still worth watching. And there was also a little show before the walk. They had some speakers. Uh, there was a host and some people talking about uh, their journey with this disease. Uh, there are some people who have, who have leukemia and went through treatment, and they told their stories. It, it was very uplifting. We do this every year, so if anyone would like to donate to the Leukemia Society, you're welcome to do so, and we will be posting on our page next year as well if you'd like to donate to Team Billy in honor of his memory. Another event that we were involved with, since the last episode, we went to one of our favorite Star Trek conventions, that being Starbase Indy in Indianapolis, Indiana, Thanksgiving weekend. So this is another event that we do every year. Starbase Indy is a fan-run convention. Uh, they have a few Star Trek guests, and they also have guests who are scientists. Uh, they promote Star Trek, and they also promote STEM education. I think that's one of my favorite aspects of this convention. Two aspects, really. It's a more intimate-sized convention, kind of like what creation conventions used to be like in the 80s and 90s. And also, the scientists that they invite there have a connection 
with Star Trek. They show how real-world science connects with the science that Gene Roddenberry envisioned. And one of my favorite parts of the convention is when they bring a variety of the scientists together, and this is all aspects of science, whether it be forensic science, biology, medicine, astrophysics, the whole gamut, just, just like the Starship Enterprise would have. And they have a nighttime mixer where you could drink with a scientist. And you could ask them any questions. And, and I have a phrase, you know, talk to me like I'm a sixth grader. And they reduce it to the ridiculous to the point that it's understandable. It's such a unique convention. Highly recommend any of our listeners checking it out, especially if you're drivable in the South or in the Midwest. They, yeah, they they do these mixers, these little get-togethers. They had parties at night. There were room parties, and a large part of the con was um, all of these panels too. They had um, some great celebrities this year. Mary Chifo, uh, who played Laurel on Discovery, she she's such a fun person, and she's very fan friendly. And representation from Star Trek Prodigy as well. From Prodigy, they had um, Bonnie Gordon, who does the voice of the, the ship on Prodigy, the protostar, and one of the co-executive producers, Aaron Watke, and he, he's a great speaker. And both of these people said they, they've always been Star Trek fans, so they thought it was just great that they got to work on Prodigy. And uh, they did a few panels, and they were they were great fun and very informative for the show. And Jen Ucellis, the Klingon pop warrior, We've known her a long time, and she does a lot of cons, and and she was there because she, well, she is always at this convention, but also this year she is um, the the Klingon language consultant for Prodigy, which is really cool uh, because she does speak Klingon, she translates songs into Klingon, and she always does a concert at Starbase Indy. I had the privilege of moderating the panel featuring Gavin Smith, Star Trek Mirror War Artist. It's a current artist for IDW Comics. Yeah, that was a good panel, too. You got to ask him the questions and kind of like have someone for him to bounce off of. Yeah, we're big fans of the Star Trek comics and highly recommend checking out his work that he does for IDW. Room parties. Of course, the Klingon Assault Group room party. It's always epic because they decorate their room like you're on Kronos. They have um, they have a weapons rack in their room, which is always cool, with, with batlets and it's just stunning. And uh, and they serve Klingon chili. And it's also the annual meeting of Starfleet Command. Yes, we are members of Starfleet Command, and we always attend their meetings. They have the award ceremony, and then also this year they're doing a change of command. We have a new uh, Commander Starfleet. We're part of the USS Athena, where you, baby doll, are the captain of our ship. Let's talk about some of the awards that the Athena was given. Yeah, we were so excited, and we were surprised. We didn't know that we were going to win awards, but we got uh, we got the retention award was one, and that is for um, having all of our members from last year uh, sign up again for this year. And we got the second place for medium ship of the year. Uh, we were a medium-sized ship, and we were just so excited that, that we got that award. And then um, also, I got second place for... Junior Officer of the Year. The Junior Officers are the ones that are that rank Commander and well, and down to Ensign are the Junior Officers. I was recently promoted to Captain, which is considered a Senior Officer, but because I they they did the awards before I got my promotion, so I got Junior Officer. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, very proud of you. These are great clubs to be part of. CAG.org, if you want to check that out, and Starfleet Command. 
yeah, check our show notes for information on how to join the Klingon Assault Group or Starfleet Command. That's one of the fun parts of going to conventions is meeting others that are in your fan clubs. Now, if any of our listeners would like to find out more about Starbase Indy planning on going next year, I think your best bet is listen to their brand new podcast hosted by Lisa Meese. She does a fantastic job interviewing not only celebrities, but also participants, uh, all aspects of people involved in the convention. I wish more conventions had a podcast like this. So we're going to put a link in our show notes. Definitely follow their podcast to find out more about this awesome convention. When it comes to video games, nobody compares to Atari. I find in television more sophisticated and lifelike. Gentlemen, move over for my friend Vic. The Commodore Vic-20. Move over. The Commodore Vic-20 does more than your machines. It's a great computer that also plays great games. Like this. And this. And this. A computer that plays great games? Under $300. Exactly. We We didn't know. Get the Commodore Vic-20 computer for under $300. Starlog Magazine, issue number 52, cover date November 1981. Log entries, latest news in the worlds of science fiction and fact. An eye on the universe. The next revolution in space exploration is two-thirds completed. When NASA's space telescope is ready for operation, it will be placed in circular Earth orbit by the space shuttle 600 kilometers above the Earth, well beyond the haze of our planet's atmosphere, which has traditionally impeded observation of the galaxies. In early 1985, when the 12-ton unmanned device is scheduled to go into operation, the space telescope will have a viewing range seven times greater than that presently enjoyed by astronomers. This improvement will amount to 14 billion more light years to be studied, or 350 times more visible space volume. Stars and galaxies that are now 50 times too faint to be seen will be within the sight of the space telescope. So we can see it took years to build this, and in in various stages. The article mentions when the last third of the space telescope's construction is completed, NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, will put the project in operation with the help of its subsidiaries. The next step into exploring space. They had all this wonderful technology back back then, and so it's just amazing what they could do. And the and when we you know see the all the transmissions, all the pictures that come back. Yeah, it's awesome. People's rewriting Trek script. In his annual phone call to the conventioneers at Washington D.C.'s August party, Gene Roddenberry gave updated information regarding the proposed second Star Trek feature. Roddenberry finally got to read through the screenplay submitted by Jack B. Swords prior to the 13-week writer strike and found it to be lacking in the essence of Trek. Rather, it was just straightforward shoot 'em up adventure. Obviously, executive producer Harv Bennett agreed because Swords was removed from the team and, in his place, Sam Peoples has been hired to rewrite the script. Peoples wrote the second pilot episode of Star Trek, Where No Man Has Gone Before, an animated Trek episode, Beyond the Farthest Star, and co-wrote Spectre with Roddenberry. Okay, so this is cover date November 1981. 
granted it takes a few months for the news to get printed to and to be distributed i think it's crazy to think how fast they put together star trek to the wrath of khan because we know that as we've been going along previously in Starlog magazine there was build up there was a lot in the works for the motion picture they were sorting things out for years essentially this we're talking roughly a year before the movie would be released, and they're still not sure of the direction that they're going. Yeah, still working on the script, and still working on the um, the people that are that are going to be producing it, writing it, and everything. So, yeah, it's it's still in the very early stages at this point. It was also confirmed that the character of Spock will be killed in the future production, tentatively slated to begin this fall. This development was brought about at Leonard Nimoy's request. Roddenberry totally disapproves of the move, but is powerless to change anything. Well, yeah, it was owned by Paramount instead of Gene. And, of course, so this is when the rumors were going around that Spock was going to die, and, and all the fans were just crying and complaining and everything. <laughs> this is the first time we're seeing it in print, though, in Starlog. Yeah. The confirmation. I, I mean, yeah, that was pretty shocking. During his discussion with the fans, Roddenberry also commented that he found network television to have changed greatly since he was actively involved in the late 1960s. He said there are plenty of young writers and producers who could fight the network today. He's too tired of fighting. It's true. Television landscape had changed dramatically since the mid-60s. And the thing is, it was hard for Gene even in the 60s, but... Today, I mean, I mean, he he's older at this time, and yeah, and just doesn't want to deal with it anymore. And as we've been noting on previous episodes of our companion podcast, Star Pod Log, science fiction television would constantly get canceled because the production values that were expected of the early '80s were so high that studios couldn't afford to produce science fiction shows in a long-run format for multiple seasons, beyond two seasons. Yeah, which is a shame, but you have to, yeah, you have to consider, I mean, I mean, yeah, it's the budget, and science fiction is expensive. But also saying that, that uh, Leonard Nimoy is the one that wanted Spock to be killed, and of course we know that because he, he wanted to move on. So at the time, yeah, it was what he wanted. And we're noting that Leonard Nimoy is a very much demand actor. Yeah, he, he had other things to do, other projects to work on. And he was still doing commercials. I think that when we look at this time period and we focus in on it, it's it's crazy of how active he was on, on every level. He was taking jobs in theater. We know he was doing Sherlock Holmes previously. He was doing productions in other movies as well as TV commercials. And In Search Of was still on the air. Yeah, so he was busy, so... Super busy. Yeah, yeah, so you can you can kind of see what he was thinking about Spock. You know, that was something that he just felt it... You know, he had done a lot with the character, and now it's time to move on. The article concludes by saying Roddenberry also said that many of his future plans revolve around cable television, calling it the wave of the future and the next place for true freedom of expression. He finally warned the fans that if Trek production doesn't meet his expectations... He will remove his name from the show. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I don't believe that at all. <laughs> well, of course, you know, Gene never got another show on the air until TNG, which wasn't cable. It was syndicated. 
True, true, but there there are some there are some stinkers that his name was associated with. Yeah, yeah, a few other things he did. Space, the final frontier. With me today are three gentlemen who all will do this in Esperanto. Below me is... I am Max. Not, I am not, Max not, oh, whoa. Metaphorically you say, speaking, you, no, did but you say physically. Below? Below did you say below? Yes. Max, your Wisconsin accent. Make sure you clarify the below. E between the B and the L. <laughs> am I, am I it's below you? It's a family you? show, Max. It's a family oh. show. Oh, man. And there's no All right. on this. <laughs> to my left, the cackling fool, who is also known as, I think I just went into like an Adam West impersonation. I went from Shatner to Adam West. How did you get out of West. Shatner to Adam That's all right. Neither one of they them wanted the same... to be typecast. <laughs> I would like to say, Bon venant a la spectaclo. If you don't know what that is, that's uh, the newly lang- new language I just learned about from 1890, 1891 called Esperanto that these two just taught me about that I thought was Klingon, apparently, but not. And I'm Rich Hurley, also known as Dr. Durant. And of course, we are here today to talk about one of the world's most famous speakers of Esperanto, William Shatner. But in, been on our research on William Shatner, we found out that he, in fact, does. How about that? And uh, that's right. Um, so that, that's why we're three cackling idiots right now talking about Esperanto. <laughs> so if you've turned if, if you've turned in, if you've turned into Star Podlog, <laughs> we're here to discuss the language of Esperanto. We're here every month to discuss all the dead languages and languages that no one speaks. So, so he actually, he, Shatner did shoot a movie called The Incubus back in the 60s that was entirely done in Esperanto. Please and, explain uh, Esperanto, because not everybody knows what it is, including me. Well, I, I believe Esperanto was a, a made-up language, much like Klingon or Elvish, but it was created to be an international language, so people that uh, can't speak to each other, say in Europe or, or other countries, could share this language, and that is the way they would communicate with each other. But it never it never took off, and it was a combination of a, a variety of different languages. I think mostly Latin, and then I think kind of Spanish, I suppose. Shatner doing Esperanto. If he did, yeah, I'm sure whatever language he did, he would uh, he would have brought that back. Could have brought back Latin back from the dead because he's such an idol for people. Well, yeah, the only reason I knew of Esperanto was because of of William Shatner, basically. It's just crazy. Uh, yeah, it's it's because of the you know that he spoke Esperanto. I heard learned about the movie Incubus. You know when you when you learn about Shatner's filmography, that's that always comes up amongst other things, and including Star Trek, which is what this article was about. Here, He's, he was just coming off the Star Trek the motion picture, which hadn't been a big hit at the time. It was considered kind of a failure, and they're kind of interviewing him about doing the second Star Trek film, which we all know now was wrath of Khan and was, was a big hit and took off and actually revitalized the franchise. But at that time, he's even talking about in this article that there's a possibility that, that the wrath of Khan was going to be a made for TV movie. If they didn't think it was going to be successful enough to be released theatrically. Well, eventually made it to TV. That's for sure. (laughs) Well, you know what's when, and what's funny about it because you know, we, we always hear, you know, how, 
they talk about Star Trek, the, the motion picture not being successful, but it really, it, you know, box office bring-in was $139 million. I mean, so maybe... 1970 what, Max? 1979? That's a lot of money back then. Yeah, $139 million. And, and And the thing is, is that, you know, you're talking about Wrath of Khan being, you know, a very big success. That only did $97 million. What? So, yeah, that... So that was three years later. So money was worth less even than three years later. Yeah. That William Shatner, you know, we were talking about different roles that Shatner had uh, been in and, and Max was bringing up that he was in Columbo. Well, Ricardo Montalban was also a, a killer on a Columbo episode. He was the bullfighter, right? Yeah. Yep, he was. And so was Leonard Nim- Nimoy. That's right. Leonard Nimoy was the doctor. And, and that's when yep. Columbo gets really mad at, at Nimoy. Like he... He's kind yeah. of sympathetic towards a lot of the killers, but like Nimoy, he's just sort of like, I'm going to get you, you son of a bitch. Like, he's yeah. not, like, a, he loses yeah. his cool with Nimoy. Like, it's, it's funny. Yeah, because yeah, Nimoy, you know, being being a doctor and, you know, played pretty, you know, a pretty hip doctor, but he's still kind of uh, a little bit on the snooty side. You know, a lot of, a lot of the, in Colombo, a lot of those people. And, and, and Shatner was terribly snooty in both of the episodes of Colombo that he was, you know, his character was, Snooty, not Shatner in particular, but right. uh, <laughs> the one where he plays a, a detective, and then in the other, the other one he plays a radio talk show host, a la Rush Limbaugh or somebody like that. But uh, right. But anyway, with this with this article, they're talking about, and again, it was kind of like when we did the um, when we did the review on the uh, making of Batman that came out in eighty one. I mean, the the article was in eighty one, yeah, but the movie didn't come out till. 89 same thing here it was kind of closed-lipped kind of talk about this upcoming movie and you know they're you know talking about you know things and hoping that it was going to actually turn out but it kind of lent itself to to maybe concerns that the first one wasn't necessarily the big thing that they hoped it would be but uh apparently you know i'm just, I, I you know for me i personally liked this the star trek movies and it's funny how he talks about it here. He talks about it in, uh, I think it was in the second part of the article where Harlan Ellison, who was a famous uh, science fiction writer, had trashed the first movie. I guess he wrote a, a review for Star Starlog and he really trashed the movie. And then typical Shatner is he, he gives one of his sort of uh, underhanded <laughs> insults. He's like, well, uh, you know, uh, he, he had some, uh, I, I believe his words were a little strong. Harlan Ellison is a strong man and he's very little, like, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, and, and it's, and it's interesting because, you know, as an actor, when you put your heart and soul into, you know, doing a project and you're, you know, you're following direction and you don't really have a probably as much influence on the storyline or the dialogue or whatever, as maybe you would like. But still, you know, you you know, you got to think that they take it kind of personal. I mean, because they did a lot of, you know, they ended up, you know, I mean, let's face it. When people talk about Shatner, I mean, they're, they're thinking of Kirk. Um, and so that's it's kind of uh, despite his full body of work that he's done, you know, like as we mentioned, you know, I mean, he did, we're, we're looking, you know, back in at, at IMDb at all the different stuff that, that Shatner does. But he's, you know, I, I would think that. You know, that he did. I mean, I think that he's probably going to be a little bit sensitive when it comes to, you know, the Star Trek because it's, you know, it's oh, such yeah. an iconic, iconic well, work. And and it's funny because, okay, this guy 
pans the the first movie, and what do they do? Like sixteen Star Trek movies later, you know? Right. And that, that's so we don't I mean, know the future, right? Like it's just crazy. Well, I thought I thought they I thought I read that when they did the pilot for Star Trek, they didn't even think they thought it was going to be really like not a very good show, and it would never really. Well, I know they wanted it to, but I read that. People are saying, eh, it's not that good, it's not that good. And then I remember reading, I don't know when, but at some point it was like the number one syndicated TV show in the world. That's where it really took off. And it's Kirk and Spock and maybe McCoy. You know, all the main characters, of course, but Kirk is like, obviously he's the strongest, right? They made him the, you know, the Johnny Macho and the super, you know, I know it all. And that's what I think that a lot of that stuff kind of went, you know, Shatner is Kirk to a certain degree. And he oh, says yeah. it all the time. Yeah. He says it in the interviews. Like, well, you know, I, I am Captain Kirk. You know, those words are my words. And if, if Kirk is mm-hmm. saying them, then it's me saying them, you know. Yes. <laughs> he's, he's, always, he's always had kind of a big ego. I, I have a record, like an LP from the 70s before the movie where Gene Roddenberry interviews different members of, of Star Trek. It was just when Star Trek fandom was starting to take off. Imagine that's on a record, though. They were right, interviewing on a record. On a record. Yeah. By, a record. By a record and listen to an interview over and over. Yeah, and you could listen to the same interview over and over. And, and <laughs> you know, Kirk, not Kirk, I'm calling him Kirk, Shatner didn't want to have anything to do with that fandom to start. He was sort of like, I don't want to be typecast. I'm sick of Kirk. I don't want to be Kirk. Um, and I think as the roles got leaner and leaner and leaner, you know, in the mid seventies and late seventies. Sort of like, yeah, I'll be Captain Kirk. You can you make know, millions of, of dollars. Well, right. Do you want to make a billion dollars? Anybody can do it. Yeah. And I, I have to say, I, I met him at a convention and he's had, he usually has a reputation for being a little cranky sometimes and stuff like that. But when I met him, he could not have been cooler. And, and he is very charismatic. And I was just like, I, I was like a, an eight year old kid again. I was in line. And I met him, and I was just like, uh, 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 and all I said was, I go, you've been my hero since I was a kid. Uh, no, I, I said, you've been my hero since I was a little boy. And he goes, he goes to me, well, it's not that long ago since you were a little boy, Rich. Like, you know, he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's like, do you see all those 10,000 people behind you? Yeah. They've been telling me the same thing all day. <laughs> yeah. But he, and he signed. He was a great guy. Uh, he, he really was nice for the few mi- few minutes I met him and spoke to him. But and he's done some fantastic stuff. I mean, like, Max said he did Columbo, and he was, he, of course, he's in the Twilight Zone, uh, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which is one of the iconic episodes of the Twilight yes. Zone. Wait, can I give you yeah. guys, can we try a little, let's try like a 30-second trivia. I'll name the movie or show, and you tell me the role. I'm going to hit you with some really hard ones. I don't think you're going to know these. These might be more surprising. Rich will know them, I think. All right. I don't know if I'll know the names of the characters. All right. Well, all right this. All right. So in 1954, he was on the Canadian Howdy Doody show. What was his role? <laughs> Ranger Bob. All right. Ranger. So let's, all right, how about this? Howdy right, do Doody. Do the Outer Limits. How about the Outer Limits? Who did he play in? Uh, do you the remember outer what episode it was? Do you remember the episode? Jeff Barton. Wow. Did you just look that up, or do you know that? No, that's the one. He's he's like a he's oh, an he astronaut. Didn't. I think he goes and he's trying to get. Uh, set up to go to like Venus or something like that, or he goes to Venus and wow. he starts to see this alien. Uh, some people like the episode, some people don't, but I, I love all those. You know, all the out of Twilight Zone. Did you know he was in Gunsmoke? Sure, he was in everything. He was on. He was in the I mean, Man from Uncle, Route sixty six, yeah. yeah. the Defenders. Yep. 
He was in Thriller, the Michael Jackson video. Oh no, I'm sorry, Thriller. Oh, no. Let me let me ask Max a question. Max, <laughs> was he ever on an episode of Perry Mason? Ooh. Um, probably. I would. Tell I would. Toronto, Max. Tell me. I watch Perry Mason all the time. I do watch him. I can't think of an episode that uh, I can, that I can remember him being on. Uh, I think Adam West was, but I don't know. If I remember. I don't know. I, I don't. I, I'm not a Perry. I, I, like was, I, I, I don't remember seeing him. He, so, I mean, so many people were, but I don't. I, I can't say as I remember him being on Perry Mason. All right, I'm going to name four shows. You tell me which one he was not on. You ready? Here we go. All right, Hawaii let's, Five. Let's... Hawaii Five O. Uh, Barnaby Jones. Manix. The Six Million Dollar Man and Kung Fu. That's five, but I'm going to say five. I'm going to say he was not on Barnaby Jones. I'm going to say he was not on the Six Million Dollar Man. You're both wrong. He was on every one of those. Every single one. Oh, he was really? On. Yeah, every single wow, one. He was looking at it. He was on everything. You're absolutely right. I, know, I, I, I wouldn't. I don't. I, you would think people would know about the six million dollar man episode. He was right. Josh Lang in the episode Burning Bright, and he was on two episodes of Kung Fu. Barnaby Jones. They did that all the time. They would recycle those guys yep. through Kung Fu. Like yeah. Barnaby Jones, he was Phil Carlisle and Fred Williams in the episode To Catch a Dead Man. Wow. Y five O, he was Sam Tolliver in the episode You Don't Have to Kill to Get Rich, but it helps. That's that sounds like that sounds like go. a lawyer commercial. Was the period where he, he was, was in living, everything. He was living right. in his truck for a while in the early seventies because he was so broke, he had no money, so he probably did tons of TV. Jeez. He's in a great he, movie he, back in the in the mid seventies, The Devil's Reign. Where it's one of John Travolta's first starring roles. John Travolta plays a Satanist with no eyes, and Ernest Borgnine's in it. Um, Ernest Borgnine, oh, Cabby, Ernest Borgnine's the devil. Actually, you might have seen it. I think Sven Gulli's shown the devil. I, I was just going to say, I think that was just on Sven Gulli a couple weeks ago. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, the devil. I mean, everybody's rain. in that thing. Keenan Wynn. Yeah. I, <laughs> Eddie Albert, Ida Lupino, Tom Skerritt. He was an airplane it. too. That's important. It was an airplane. That's right. Airplane too. Yeah, how come he never took off? Like, uh, what's his name there from Naked Gun? Oh, Leslie. Leslie Nielsen. Nielsen. Yeah, because he 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 could do the same thing, right? He, he yeah, it was all. That, yeah, you're right. You know? It was always the same thing. Yeah, and the, I don't know. I think the fight, like Shatner, seemed like I said, he seemed to have a, a good attitude and stuff. Like you said, you met him. He was cool. I know people said. Maybe he's not, but I did see like just side notes. Oh, Leslie Nielsen, uh, they interviewed him outside doing the movies, and he wasn't so nice. <laughs> he was kind of a kind of a crabby old dude, but yeah. But uh-huh. Shatner's in everything. He's in I'm, look. He's in everything. Every single year, he's been in something at least one. He's still two. doing things, you know. He is. He is. Well, like I said, he was. Uh, I remember he was on a, uh, a commercial here locally, and we were talking about it. Uh, for a law firm, Hupe and Abraham. And, oh my God, uh, Max, that's on that's on his that's on his roster here on the Hupe and Abraham. It's here. What there you go. Mean? How about uh, the one for the soap clean machine for the uh, CPAP <laughs> cleaning machine? He he was on Promise Margarine in the seventies. Commodore, ready for this? He was on a Commodore Computers commercial. He was oh. the Vic, the Vic I remember that one. spokesman. Yeah. yeah. 
He's been a World of Warcraft, Hupy and Abraham Law Firm, Star Trek, the video game commercial. Wow, man. He, that's unbelievable, man. There's like no gaps in his there's no gaps in his career. He's, he's just a he's a working actor, right? Like, I yes, mean, obviously is. Kirk is his number one role, but they mentioned that he's in Big Bad Mama with Shelley Winters, which wasn't a fantastic movie. I believe it's Shelley Winters is in that, and he's in that with Angie Dickinson as well. And then he talks about how he's possibly going to do a cop show, which I assume wound up being T.J. Hooker, because it was right around that period that T.J. Hooker came out. Yeah, yeah, because, and and it's and it's neat because when you look back at all the stuff that he did, I mean, he wasn't always the maybe the star either. He played supporting roles. He played uh, yeah. feature featured pieces. You know, maybe like like in the Columbo stuff. I mean, he was you know he was a he was a killer in both episodes, so he, you know, a major part of those shows. Um, but, but in other stuff where he's, you know, uh, just doing a character, walk on character role, you know, so, you know, a lot of, a lot of credit to him, you know. Hey, Max, did you know he was in, in 2017? 2017, he was in Batman versus Two Face. He was, he played the, he did the voice of Two Face. You're damn right he did. Very good. He sure did. Yes, he did. Very good. Yes, he did. Mm-hmm. Direct the video, it says. Man, he's done yep. every I mean, like that's a man, that's a hell of a roster. This guy, he never even takes a vacation. <laughs> According to that. He's still worried. I mean, he's got that's yeah. He does he's in every single convention. You look at any convention now, he's there. he's gonna that's show unbelievable. up. And he's he goes older. all the Yeah, he's in his nineties, I think. He's yeah. in his early nineties. He looks great. I mean, you know, for a 90-year-old guy. Yeah, sure. He's quite active for his thing. It's funny. When I met him, I was, I'm was i waiting in line, and this kid's behind me. He was a kid. He's a guy. He's probably in his 50s. Rich, wait, Rich cut some five-year-old off. To <laughs> get his autograph. Get, get out of the way, kid. Get out of the way. And we're talking, <laughs> about, <laughs> we're, out of his hand. we're talking about William Shatner, and he goes, he goes, I, you know, I, I want to meet William Shatner because uh, he helped me overcome my fear of spiders because of the movie. What? King, King, William Shatner was in the movie called Kingdom of the Spiders, which is I don't see how that's a movie that helps anybody overcome their fear of spiders because it's about <laughs> tarantulas like taking over an Arizona town. And he goes, I, I wrote a letter that I'm going to read to him when I get up there. And I, he goes, oh, would no. you like to hear it? I oh, said, oh, no. Sure. It was oh, a no. seven-page letter oh, that went on oh forever and ever. And I was just like, I, Wait, my eyes got wider and wider. Rich, my Rich jaw, was like I'm an like, airplane where the lady turns into yeah. the skeleton. Yeah. Or he's hanging himself from the roof. Oh, man. And I said to oh, myself, I said, there's oh. no way he's going to sit still for you to read him this seven-page letter, dude. Like, the line did you, behind did the you guy, sit there and watch? I would I would have had to. I would have had to see how many pages he got through. But it was literally, it was like, it was like, spiders are actually very interesting to the environment. And then he goes on with a whole history of spiders and how spiders are beneficial to the environment and what they can do. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I think if he would have been behind me, I would have had to, you know, after I left, you know, maybe maybe uh, given uh, William a, a, a clue what was coming. But I would have stood to the side and, and just – See how many pages he actually got through, and see how how William Shatner uh, brushed him off. Or funny, does he charge for his autograph when you go up? I oh yes, he does. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, I can only imagine what he charges for that. There's no everybody charges now, Lou. No nobody gives it away for free anymore. It's rich. 
Yes. Do you think, and Max, you can answer this too, but I think this is going to affect Rich the deepest, especially since he met uh, Shatner. So in the 1970s, do you think Shatner would have been even more popular if he got one of those 70s curly perms like the greatest American hero? (laughs) (laughs) How do you think he would have looked if he had that as, as Captain Kirk? Oh, it would have been awful. Oh my goodness. His son is actually, that's why I hate his son in Wrath of Khan because his son has a blonde perm in Wrath of oh. Khan. Like, you know, his son that gets. Yes. He, I yes. Think he gets killed in Star Trek. Oh, spoiler alert for a 40 year old movie. But he, he gets killed in Star Trek 3. If you haven't seen like, it by now, you're pretty much hopeless. So just let it go. No, I oh, think it would have looked great with a curl, man. I think that would have been. Uh, that would be, you know, a, now think about this. Just hold on. I want you to just close your eyes for a minute. I want you to imagine him in the white outfit and, the, and Star Trek, the motion picture uh. or whatever color it was, the whitish color with that spaceship, just everything kind of floating around. And he has this big curl on top of his head, like, uh, <laughs> like the hair, like that was it the hair bears or whatever that was that cartoon. You know, I, I, I can't, I can't see that, but I could see him in a, I could see him totally doing a michael bolton mullet oh you know? oh, oh, oh there you go oh, you know perm mullet there, oh, right? oh he's, he's playing, the, playing the star trek theme he's playing oh. the star trek theme on a clarinet he's like oh. <laughs> max you just oh. i think i just threw up <laughs> oh my god that's terrible Oh, if he had a mullet. Oh, Jesus. Well, I mean, Shatner, Shatner is known for his, his variety of hair pieces that he wears. Oh, he could be like Joe Dirt with that long mullet. <laughs> I am the captain. So with that hair, this is where I get my strength from. I feel like I just burped uh, jalapenos up. My mouth is just, <laughs> my throat's burning. Is it jalapenos <laughs> or jalapenos? Jalapenos. Well, so now you're going to, yeah, well, I think the proper. Sabotage or sabotage? I, I still like, I still one of my favorite things with him is when he was on Saturday Night Live and he did the Star Trek convention. And um, what's his face? Had the Spock ears on. John he points Lennon. like, you, have you ever kissed a girl before? <laughs> it's not real. Go home. I <laughs> lost it. He's just, he's just. He's just good, even when he's like doing like non-serious stuff. He's very good. Yeah, and they they do uh, they do the funny one on that one too. It's the same episode where he plays T.J. Hooker. Yeah, he's just on the hood of the car for like the whole time. <laughs> like he's going through different <laughs> weather patterns. <laughs> I think it's safe to say he was a good sport for stuff. You know, yeah, he's a good guy. I mean, he gets a bad rep, but who doesn't? I can imagine if you if you're signing autographs all day, you're at a convention walking around and people are just constantly, you know, want to talk to you. You know, there's a point where you're like, I just want like five minutes to myself. Can I pee in the men's room by myself or do I have to be followed by fans? You know, I'm sure there's a point where you want to get a little bit of a break. It must be rewarding to know that, you know, throughout your entire life, you did one. He did this role way back in the 60s. He's in his 90s now. And people still love him and know him for it, and it still endures. It, yeah. it hasn't ended. There are certain roles, you know. I mean, nobody really thinks of James Arness from Gunsmoke now, or no. or no. you know Raymond Raymond Burr from Perry Mason. Those guys have kind of died out. But this is endured. or Lauren Green from Bonanza. Yeah, right. Whatever exactly. else he used to do and, dog and food commercials. Was, I mean, you know. there was a time that Gunsmoke was the had been on 
longer than any show in history. I think. I think it's still. Forever. I think Gunsmoke still holds that record. Didn't wow. The Simpsons beat it? Oh, did they? Yeah, The Simpsons is in like <laughs> season thirty-two. <laughs> right wow. out loud. How do I mean, how do you come up with enough material for that stuff? I don't get That's it. Crazy, right? Yeah. I I imagine if I was Shatner, I would be, like where they did a. God, one of the adventures where Tony Stark builds his house on the cliff. If I was Shatner, I would build an Enterprise. That would be my house. And it would be like oh, hanging out over the cliff, like the the dish. And then you could pull in the back. <laughs> the back would be where you park the car and you walk in. It just looks like your house is a big spaceship. The Enterprise. Right? Over the, yeah, over the Enterprise, over the cliff. I think the that, doors all open up like whoosh. That. <laughs> <laughs> Computer, turn on TV. Too crazy. Well, essentially, the article was him talking about Star yeah. Trek, the motion picture, and where you know Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan was going to be. Which they they don't mention the title of the film in the article at all. Just as the or, any, or anybody else that was going to be in it, you know, they were kind of vague on on other what? actors and what the storyline was going to be, and even who the directors and you know. The only thing they did mention, which I guess we didn't mention, which is kind of important, is Gene Roddenberry was out. They brought in Harve Bennett to take yeah, over, right. and he, he does bring up, he's like, well, you know, Gene Roddenberry is Star Trek, and he created Star Trek, and but uh, that the studios sort of felt, and, and I think a lot of people, when they go back and look at Star Trek, the motion picture is, Gene Roddenberry never really had very many successful TV shows after Star Trek, the things he tried to do, so I don't know if he just didn't have the skills, or they just didn't, not the skills, but, you know... <laughs> He's more of a TV writer than a movie writer. Yeah, and I, I think the movie didn't take off the way they wanted, so maybe the, the powers that be said, look, we need to tone it back a little bit. Well, they also got to remember, like, Star Wars, like, crushed everything oh what, my God. years before or a year before, whatever it was. Well, if Star Wars didn't, we never would have had Star Trek again. There you for go. For sure. I mean, if Star Wars didn't set off that whole sci-fi mania oh my you would god never, you would never you have never seen star trek get resurrected because they brought it back briefly as a cartoon and shatner did the voice on that they all did and why do we love the cartoon so much rich as a side note because they are the basis for the mego figures the neptunian that's and the right. neptunian <laughs> the neptunian but I I always thought that the Mego figures look yeah. more like the animated series Star Trek figures yeah. than the and I say the same thing for yeah, um for the Planet of the Apes figures. A lot of people think that the Planet of the Apes figures are based off the TV show, but if oh, you watch like the Planet the of the Apes cartoon, Doctor Zayas oh. is in a white outfit. And is he in an orange outfit in the movie or TV show? Or yeah, in the movie he's like in an orange leather yeah, outfit. An orange exactly. One, yeah. yeah, and the, no, you know, I, the I agree with you. You know, the Sipsas, Lou, the Sipsa apes, the Sipsa Urko has the orange sleeves. He doesn't have the purple ones like the uh, the Mego does. And that's straight from the cartoon. The cartoon Urko, if you are Google it, he's they wearing had pants orange. in the cartoon, didn't they? Yeah, they did. They had pants. <laughs> Can you imagine if they did a Star Trek cartoon with no pants like they did with the Sipsa apes? I mean, they'd be like <laughs> shattery walking around. I am Captain Kirk. I wonder if they did shoot some episodes where Kirk's just being shot from the waist up and he's not wearing any pants sitting at the command. Oh, like when they used to do the news where they sat yeah. behind the desk like we're just wearing shorts and flip-flops? I don't know. I mean, I think I, – honestly, I think like when I think about the way they portrayed his character, it, I mean, if I was him, I'd be pretty confident too. I mean, they basically made him – he could have – 
You could have any one of these fine green, purple, red, you know, or orange ladies on the show, and they just kept throwing them at them. So, you know, I'd say. Well, it's interesting. The first Kirk, well, not Kirk, the first star was going to be Jeffrey Hunter. Yeah. That's the, you know, and then the only one that made it over into the the next rendition was Leonard Nimoy as Spock. Spock. They thought he was interesting. And then they cut that up. Everybody knows they cut that episode up later to, uh, to be a two-parter in the series. And then they shot a second pilot with Shatner as Kirk. And that was the one that the network sort of gelled to. Listen, he, he did his thing. He did his, that guy had, that guy is, that guy is a magnet for money for himself. He's still doing his thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I know it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. I, well, good for him, man. I'm, it's nice to see something like that. And he's still going. I mean, he's. Yep. Only he's, three of them left now. Kirk, Takei, and man. Chekhov. He's a huge toy collector. And Ooh. he loves collecting uh, the guy that played Chekhov. What, and Star he, Trek toys or? Star Trek and other toys, yeah. Oh, shit. He That's collects crazy. all sorts of stuff. He especially loves collecting figures of himself. I wonder if, if Shatner does that, you know? I, I was going to say, does do you, do you like... Like you ever see when somebody goes, they like, make a toy and then they give it to the actor, and of course the actor probably is like, "Oh, this is the greatest thing! It looks just like me." I'm pretty sure they go home, half of them be like, "This doesn't look a damn thing like me." <laughs> like, what Throw it on this? the floor. Yeah, like what do you do with it? What does he do with it? I don't know. Shatner's got like a big, giant, six foot statue of himself in the house as as Kirk. I mean, I don't. know. He's got enough money. You could. What else do you do with your money? So, without further ado. We'll bid our farewells to this strange planet. Hi, I'm Max Overnighter. Uh, you'll find me on Facebook in the Migo Like group, along with my buddy, the infamous man of ill repute. So I am uh, Lou Malagrana. You can find me with Max on Migo Like on Facebook. My name is Dr. Durant, and you can find me on YouTube uh, as well as Various pages throughout Facebook. We have a, a Dr. Duran's Facebook page. And uh, my real name is Rich Hurley. So uh, please come and check out Dr. Durant's Sanctum. We talk about all sorts of fun and interesting things over there, including toys and comic books and, and what have you. Star Trek The Motion Picture, A Year Later, by Deanna Rafferty. Now we're going to take this discussion as it was recorded in Best of Trek number four. And we know this was a series of books that reprinted articles from Trek magazine. Yeah, Trek was a fanzine. And they made these compilations of it called Best of Trek in these uh, mass market books. And they were awesome. I collected them back then. What I love about this specific article, and it was this book was printed in 1981... It focuses in on the after effects of Star Trek The Motion Picture and how fans were able to discuss and consume this work of art and surrounding the controversy of whether this movie was really a Star Trek movie or not because some fans just felt it wasn't and there was some saying it's one of the best Star Trek movies ever. What I love about it is it brings us to a glimpse of what it was like to rewatch movies of this time period. Because if you didn't see the movie enough times in the movie theater, the only way you could see it is by having the videotape. 
and a small segment of society were able to afford a machine like a Betamax and buy a videotape. The manufacturer suggested retail price in 1981 for Star Trek The Motion Picture was $79.99. Yeah, that's a lot, yeah. But I remember remember them being expensive when they first came out, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's ludicrous to think that. Our family did not have a VCR at this time. I don't even think I knew about a VCR at the time. It was probably a year or two later where there was this girl down the street that her family, she was unique. Her mother and father both worked. And we were like, your mother works too? I'm like, full time? Not just a part-time job here and there, but so they had a VCR. Yeah, and I, it was different back then. Um, yeah, we didn't have a VCR either until later. Uh, but this is the recollection of a fan of how they were to get so much out of the movie by rewatching it on a VCR. The notation of Star Trek is meant to be watched on television, not on the big screen. And we've said that before, that Star Trek actually is better on the small screen. It, it was made to be a TV show, and, and it works better at, at, on TV where you can see the characters develop over time. The author of this article writes that it's been a very strange year, in fact. Most of us saw the movie many times in its original release and poo on Paramount for not giving us the promised summer re-release, which that, in fact, is curious that it wasn't re-released to the theaters again. We know that many movies were re-released to the theaters. Even James Bond movies were re-released to the theaters. Why wasn't Star Trek? An interesting thought, but it, but it was put on, you know, on Showtime later. Way later, sure. Some of us were lucky enough to have friends with a videotape recorders and have seen it many times more. And yay to Paramount for putting the movie on pre-recorded videotapes so quickly. So within a year they put this out. We've discussed the film endlessly, some of us changing our opinions about it in aspects of a number of times in the process Reading and quoting from all the reviews and overviews about Star Trek The Motion Picture, we could get our hands on. And we've all watched box office results with bated breath, knowing that only they will ultimately decide if a sequel will be made. It's a very strange and rough year, but very interesting. I think that's a good way to look at it. What life was like post-TMP and pre-Wrath of Khan. I mean, yeah, I was waiting for, for the second movie to come out. So, you know, all of this time, you know, reading Starlog and like, okay, so what's going to happen? What's it going to be? Author of the article is also excited that ABC has the rights to broadcast the motion picture in the 1981-1982 season. And this is when a lot of people saw it. Yeah, I saw it on TV. I was a huge fan of the Sunday night movie. And when when they put it on TV, they added a few minutes. So that was neat, too. Interesting that you bring that up because the original video cassette did not have the added minutes. So those people that spent eighty dollars on a video cassette were excited even more so to watch it on TV to see the bonus footage. Yeah, it almost seems like you're playing like games with people. Yeah, <laughs> of course, of course it, they did. But they say watching it on a VCR was so much better. Because they were able to go over the scenes, they were able to close in on things that they wouldn't be able to stop and stare at in a movie theater, and also discuss it as a group. 
We have to remember this is the era of local fan clubs being a big deal, going over each other's houses to discuss Trek. One of the observations was how depressing this movie was in the fact that Star Trek had become a military or the Enterprise had become a military vessel and there was danger aboard the Enterprise. This is something I never stopped to think about, how Chief Rand was behind a glass wall when she was transporting people. Nowhere else in Trek do we see the transporter chief have a screen in front of them. They did change some things from the movie. So, yeah, that was, um, I mean, it was a different take on it. Truly different take. It indicated danger. Also, this film had a weapon, or this Enterprise had a weapon station on it. Previously, the Enterprise did not have a weapon station. I think it was more um, Robert Wise's vision of it and, and how he wanted to do the movie. It's why it came out that way. And these observations would lay the groundwork for Star Trek going forward. The question is, would the Enterprise go on to be a vessel of exploration, or would it be more of a military vessel? And so, so at the time, they didn't know, but it... But, I mean, the the talk about Star Trek II, even when it came out, they said the uniforms looked more military, and Kirk had all the uh, the weapons in his in his quarters, things like that that just that really gave the uh, the impression that it was more military. Yeah, good points of observation at this time period, post TMP, where anticipation was high for the Star Trek sequel. We're going to close out, as usual, talking about one of the ads that's found in Starlog magazine. This one, it was a long-running ad. It shows a woman with a gold jacket on and a man with a silver jacket on. The official authorized space shuttle mission jacket. Lightweight, durable, space-age material utilized in classic pilot jackets designed by Watkins, the quality company that gave Burt Reynolds his macho driver look. <laughs> <laughs> By exclusive arrangement, the Watkins Jackets, the foremost manufacturer of high-quality racing and driving jackets, Starlog Press is able to make these limited-edition, extremely practical space shuttle jackets available for our readers only for a limited time. Order yours today while our sizes and colors are fully stocked. Uh, so the, so the gold jacket, it, it does look neat, it does kind of look like an astronaut's jacket, except that it's gold instead of silver, but it's got patches on it. It's got the U.S. flag on the sleeve and a space shuttle patch. But the thing is, they never see astronauts wear gold or silver jackets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's patterned more after the suits, the space suits. I guess so. Or more of a movie version. I mean, usually astronaut jackets are either blue or white. They're not shiny. Yeah, this was meant to look more... Spacey, but I think it, it is a neat-looking jacket. Oh, I think it's a, okay. So shown here, it says the presidential jacket in gold is one hundred twenty-four ninety-five. Oh, and it, and it includes a name patch personalized as you choose. Yeah, they yeah they're one hundred twenty-five dollars. Yeah. The silver and gold same price. The um oh okay the the Columbia shuttle jacket is one hundred nine ninety-five. So that one's a little cheaper. I would like the Columbia one. We just talked about the Columbia launch in our last episode, so that's fresh in our minds. But I think the silver one's pretty cool looking. Yeah, it is. 
I mean, I think um, it would still look good today, even though it's got that 80s look. (laughs) But I like the 80s look. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long, and may the force be with you. Nanu, nanu. Nanu, nanu.